As we look towards another new year, it's sometimes hard to believe, for those of us old enough to remember, that 1999 was 24 years ago. And soon, as I'm recording this on New Year's Eve, it will be a full quarter century ago. Leading up to the end of 1999, there was talk of Y2K, the end of the world, and we could all hear the sound of Prince singing everywhere that we went. When I first heard him singing the song 1999, it seemed like that year was so far away, but now it's a year long gone by. But as with every year, there's people all over the world celebrating the new year coming in, but many others are mourning the loss of a loved one that they may have lost in this past year. It may have been due to natural causes, an accident, or the unexpected and sudden shock of losing a loved one to foul play. Losing someone is never easy, even if it's something that's expected. But losing someone in the blink of an eye due to the intent and actions of another person leads one to question their faith in humanity, their safety in this world, and in the case that we'll be looking at tonight, maybe their faith in the justice system may be shaken. I see with so many cases where trials and appeals carry on for years, maybe even decades. And I understand the need for appeals, for everybody to be given their day in court and to be treated fairly. But then I also question the seemingly perpetual revolving door of appeals and motions and hearings that keep bringing up those painful memories for those left behind. They have to keep hearing about the horrifying last moments of their daughter, their mother, their sister. So the murder victim's family has to relive that every time they enter a courtroom. Today, we'll be looking at the December 18th, 1999 murder of Denise Rudy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host today. Now, today's episode will probably be quite long, and just to let everybody know, it's going to have more legal information in there about the aftermath of the case, as I wasn't able to find a lot of information about the victim. However, there were some points brought up in appeal that some may see as valid, and others that some might see as just a way to try to extend the time before the ultimate punishment would be carried out. There are quite a few points today, so I'm not going to do a long introduction. If you do want to see any of the sources, they will be linked in the description. As always, when I am using newspapers.com for archive newspapers, I will leave the date and the newspaper on there in case you do have a subscription to either the newspaper itself or newspapers.com. And there will probably be a second episode regarding this case, but more about the court system again, as this did bring up you know, a lot of information, first about the courts and the appeals process, and secondly, with one of the people involved in the incident that probably should not have been where he was if the courts had done their jobs, or more specifically, the Department of Corrections. So with all of that being said, let's hear the case of Denise Rudy. 
It was late on December 17, 1999, when Siddiqui Garden, James Hollis, and Christopher Johnson drove into the city of Wilmington. They were using Siddiqui Garden's girlfriend's van, a woman by the name of Constance Webster, though she was described in court documents as his sometime girlfriend. For him to be using the van, I myself would assume that they were at the very minimum on speaking terms at the time when these incidents took place, or at most they were in an active relationship. The three men drove the streets that I know well when I lived up in Wilmington. I may have walked along the same routes, going to and from bus stops when I took the bus. Then once I had my car, the same streets that I drove down to go to work, to get to the library, or do some shopping downtown. They were near places and eventually stopped close to one parking lot, close to where I used to work. So while this took place quite a bit of time before I lived there, I can still almost feel the crisp, cool night air and also see the relatively crowded parking lots and parking structures and the crowded streets that are the opposite of most towns and cities on Delmarva. While some people on this night may have been looking to buy last-minute presents for the holidays, the three men in the van were looking for something else, but not necessarily looking to buy anything with their own money, at least not at that time. Maybe once they completed their mission, they might try to use their ill-gained proceeds to buy what they wanted. First, though, they needed to make a stop. They stopped at 704 North Tatnall Street. This was Siddiqui Garden's apartment. One of the men, James Hollis, stayed at the Tatnall Street residence. While he was not going along with the other two, Hollis did know what they were going to do. They were going to try to rob someone no matter what, with Christopher Johnson arming himself with a 25 caliber handgun. It didn't take them long to find some people. Only on 8th Street already, the two men found a couple who were walking, a man and a woman. Both of the men walked up to the two people and, as we've probably seen so many times in movies and TV, they forcefully asked for their money. The two people, who I will only use their first name, I don't want to bring up you know, questions for them if, say, somebody's listening to this and didn't know that they were involved um, in this crime as victims. I don't want to bring up questions for them to be asked about it. So I'm just going to be using their first names. And they were Vincent and Karen. They took the purse and a wallet from the two and went back to Garden's residence. The three then decided to go shopping and use their victims' cards. The first place they stopped at was a gas station where they made a $2 purchase. And the second place was a Walmart where they spent approximately $450. Now, just a little bit of side information um, about cards going back to 1999. At the time, the self-pay at the pump was available. At least around that time, it was pretty common for those who committed robbery, like in this case, to stop at a gas station and try to use the card to check to see if it was still working. When going to a gas pump, you wouldn't have to hand the card to someone so that they could question if it was really your card. You would be alone at the pump and you know, just slide it in. If it was authorized, that would mean that 
those who were robbed had not reported the card stolen yet and it was still active at the time because I know from experience that if a number of gas station purchases came up in the same day, some financial institutions would recognize this and actually see it as a potential fraud and reach out to you know, the person who actually owned the card. This was a time where it might take additional time for someone to be able to contact their financial institution and let them know that the card had been stolen. Now we might be able to bring out our cell phones if they had not been stolen as well and just click the block option on the app so that you wouldn't have to worry about anybody trying to use your money. Back then though, it wasn't quite that easy and if someone stole your card, you may not have the phone number to your bank or credit card company readily available. So there was some time to work with. So the reason why multiple transactions might be seen on these types of cards after they've been stolen is in between each stop from going to a different store, someone would want to make sure that the you know, card was still active. So that's just a little bit of information um, about that time period. It was a $2 purchase, so they may have actually gotten gas. But again, at the time, there was usually just a dollar authorization to make sure the card was still active. So I don't know what the intent was there, but the first thing I thought of when I read they went to a gas station was they were just trying to make sure the card um, had not been blocked yet. But after their December 17th rendezvous with robbery, on December 18th, Garden was now using a maroon Camry, and he picked up his pals while showing absolutely no concern for public safety or even their own. They were drinking and smoking marijuana while driving. They needed more money, so again, they decided that they needed to rob someone. They did stick close to home and were scoping out some places close to Siddiqui Garden's apartment. As Hollis was with them, he did stay in the Camry. James Hollis needed to use crutches as his right leg had been amputated. So according to at least one court document, he used the crutches to get around, which is why Johnson and Garden were the ones who were actively committing the robbery, even though Hollis was aware of what they were doing and he had been aware the previous night as well. They were once again near the Tattnall Street parking area on the 800 block, and they started walking towards a parking lot on the 800 block of Orange Street. Now, I've read some articles that say it was the same parking lot that the other two people had been robbed the previous night, but I didn't see that in any of the actual court documents and the exact address wasn't given. So if it wasn't the exact same parking lot, it was at least in the same general area. But the parking lot that they went to on the 18th was behind a restaurant named Bottle Caps Bar and Restaurant. The two robbers saw, saw a car pull into the parking lot, and they probably thought that it was the perfect way to find some unsuspecting victims. It was perfect timing, and they could just approach the car. A female who was seated in the passenger side of the car got out and Garden, now armed, quickly went up to her and pressed the gun into her side. Johnson stood about 10 feet from the vehicle and he acted in the role of a lookout. He told the woman, who I'm going to again just use the first name of Stephanie, 
to give him her money, but she said that she didn't have any. He then addressed a man who was closer to the front of the car and once again demanded money from a man named John. Echoing Stephanie, he said that he didn't have any either. There was now one person left in the car, a woman who was in the driver's seat. This was Denise Rudy. She also said that she didn't have any money. However, again, there is some conflict where some articles said that she was going to cooperate and give him her purse. But there are some conflicts there. Now, unlike the request from the previous two people, Garden must have been really angry at this point because he just shot Denise. He shot a woman with no provocation. One shot went into her chest and another into her neck area. It was described in one document as her shoulder, but from the description in other articles, it sounded like it was closer to the neck area, and both injuries would have been deemed fatal. So that's why I'm thinking it was more in the neck area. Johnson did say that someone was coming and quickly ran away. He may not have been expecting for Garden to shoot anybody. While Denise's two companions stood there, probably in shock, Garden decided to stop for a second and look back. He once again fired, this time going through Stephanie's jacket. She was not injured, but he had still attempted to shoot her. The police were summoned and got there quickly, but it was too late. Denise Rudy was flown to Christiana Hospital, but she was pronounced dead. Showing absolutely no remorse after killing a woman, Garden, along with his companions, Johnson and Hollis, decided to go to a party. Denise Rudy was 36 and the mother of four children. She worked at Delaware Park for about 10 years and was well-liked. But like so many victims, there wasn't a lot of information that I could find for her. This was 1999, where computers were in many houses by this point, but the internet was not as fast or as widespread as it is now. Um, It was a lot slower. So she wouldn't have had, say, an internet presence like we have today with social media. There had been a spate of assaults and robberies in the area with a young man named Jackie Mills, only 20 years old, shot shortly before these two robberies took place or attempted robberies in Denise's case. Many merchants were scared about how this might not only affect their safety and the safety of their employees, but also the willingness of customers to come to the area when it seemed to be crime-ridden. Rewards were put up to try to catch the murderer and his accomplices, and through the help of surveillance cameras at Walmart, they were able to identify Hollis, feeling that the two incidents might be connected, especially since they were so close to each other. They did apprehend Hollis and were later able to apprehend Johnson and Garden with the testimony of Hollis and Johnson against Garden. Both men pointed to Garden as the shooter of Denise Rudy. So the case was pretty quickly solved and went to court. 
Hollis and Johnson received plea bargains to testify against Garden. Now, when I mentioned that there would probably be a second episode about this, it's in regards to Johnson. Johnson had actually escaped from custody twice before and had walked away from a work release program. He was also part of that was a drug rehabilitation program. So he walked away from that. So technically, he should not have been able to be out and, you know, doing anything like this with his friends, but he was. So that brought up a lot of questions at the time. And unfortunately, we see it today where people may have been given a lenient sentence and were out. And in this case, arguments were made that Johnson should not have been eligible for the program that he was in because of his past history. So I do want to cover that later because there were as many, if not more, articles about that than there were about Garden's actual trial. What I'm going to do now is go over a couple of key points during the trial, but really there was a lot more information and I would say discourse after the trial was over and appeals began. Stephanie and John identified Garden as the shooter, but we also need to understand that Hollis and Johnson also pointed to Garden as the shooter. In regards to Stephanie and John, the defense pointed out that when the identification is of a person of a different race, the reliability of eyewitness testimony decreases significantly. They submitted expert testimony, and the judge did allow most of that testimony except for one part. The part that he denied was the testimony that would say that the, quote, degree of confidence an eyewitness espouses has no relationship to its accuracy, end quote. I will go over this a little bit more in the appeals. So basically what was being said here is that the judge did not allow into testimony or as evidence anything discussing the expert's opinion that stated just because a witness believes they are 100% accurate has no relation as to whether or not it's accurate. And the reverse is also true, that if someone is not entirely sure, it does not mean that they're inaccurate. I know, again, I'll get into that a little bit more later. There were quite a few charges levied against Siddiqui Garden and his cohorts in crime. But as I said, those two took plea deals and testified against him. Many of Garden's charges were related to the robberies and the weapons, weapon that he used. However, he was convicted for two counts of murder, with one being intentional murder and then also a felony murder charge. Felony murder is when a murder or death takes place when another felony is being committed. In this case, that would be the armed robbery. So seemingly, the trial itself was over very quickly. One, I'd say, very peculiar thing in, you know, my mind at least, is that there had been a charge of attempted murder for Stephanie, as he did turn around and shoot at her. However, he was found not guilty of attempted murder against her. So after finding him guilty, the jury would then go into what's called the penalty phase, where they discuss whether or not the defendant 
who has been found guilty should get life imprisonment or the death penalty. Now, just to note, the death penalty is no longer allowed in the state of Delaware. It was abolished in the state in 2016, but this is all before that time period. During discussion over the penalty, there are two things that the jury needs to look at called aggravating circumstances or factors and mitigating circumstances or factors. Now, the aggravating factor or factors here start with the attempted robbery. This is a murder that took place in the commission of another felony. So already before anything's even discussed, the jury has found beyond a reasonable doubt that Garden was guilty. Hence, they already know that there is at least one aggravating circumstance. So let's just go over quickly a couple of different mitigating factors and aggravating factors and see you know, just kind of the examples and how they may affect the people who are you know, making the decision as to the penalty for someone now, looking up Delaware when it still enacted the death penalty, there were quite a few aggravating factors listed. A lot of states had maybe 16 or less, whereas Delaware had 22. What I find interesting is one of the first ones um, where an aggravating factor may be if someone had escaped from jail and killed someone. And I wonder if Johnson, if he had been tried and hadn't taken the plea deal, if this would have counted as an aggravated factor against him. Another factor could be if, say, you use someone as a shield or a hostage, um, that would fall under an aggravating factor, murder for hire, or as we see in this case, during the commission of another felony, in this case, robbery. Also, there's the killing of an officer in the commission of their duties. And I think most of you know about my cousin who was killed in the line of duty. And also, I have other family members in law enforcement. A family member who is a corrections officer was recently injured. He and his partner took an inmate to the hospital, and the inmate did try to escape and try to grab um, my family member's partner's weapon um, between you know, my family member and his partner, as well as another officer who was not there for the same reason, but then assisted, they were able to stop the escape. But, you know, again, my family member sustained a minor injury. So when I look at the aggravating factors, you know, I kind of feel that they're very personal in a lot of ways. But then I also think anytime someone is murdered, whether it's in the commission of any of these aggravating factors, it's still a heinous crime that someone can turn around and take the life of someone for no reason. Moving on to mitigating factors, these are things that lessen the culpability of the defendant or the accused. According to capitalpunishmentcontext.org, some mitigating factors may be the mental health of the defendant, if the defendant truly reflects that they're remorseful, um, if they had neglect or abuse in their youth, all of these could be mitigating factors that the defendant's attorney tries to use. I have heard this in connection with the person who killed my cousin, where he had family members who came in and 
who basically argued that he wasn't loved enough as a child. So these are things that the defense will look into and try to bring up if their client has been found guilty. Speaking shortly after Denise Rudy's death, Corporal Stephen Martelli, who was the spokesperson for the police department, said, quote, to just shoot someone who was complying with your demands is just cowardly. This crime weighs heavy on a lot of people, especially this poor woman's family during Christmas, end quote. Now, like here, initial reports stated that Denise Rudy was reaching into her purse to comply when she was shot, but other reports do say that she denied having any money. And what was also reflected at the time is that this could have been anybody. Denise Rudy was going to the bar and restaurant to listen to a coworker who was playing in a band there. They just wanted to have a good time, maybe hang out after work without having to worry about all the stress that work brings and just enjoy some time during the holidays. So whether or not there were aggravating or mitigating factors, this did weigh very heavily, as Corporal Martelli said, among everybody in Wilmington and even into Philadelphia and New Jersey and Maryland because there were newspaper reports in there as well. So during the penalty phase, the jury had to decide whether or not the mitigating factors outweighed the aggravating or vice versa. If the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating factors, then that would mean they were eligible for the death penalty. And this is something that the judge would review, but the judge is the one who ultimately makes the decision. When the jury came back to give their recommendation on the punishment, they found that the mitigating factors outweighed the aggravating factors in both charges. In one, it was a vote of 10 to 2 and another 9 to 3, stating that the mitigating factors outweighed aggravating factors. For me, this is kind of difficult to understand, especially about the felony murder charge as automatically that aggravating factor was there. That would be actually part of the charge. But after review of the evidence, the jury did come back with that with that verdict of 10 to 2 and 9 to 2. Oh, I'm sorry, 9 to 3. Now, I did say recommendation. The judge would review factors again and decide whether or not to take the jury's recommendation. Not every state has this statute that allows this what's called hybrid decision. In some states, it has to be that the jury decides you know, unanimously that the person decides the death penalty. In Delaware, along with Florida and Alabama at this time, it was you know, an instance where the jury would make the guilty or not guilty verdict, then discuss the penalty, and then the judge would pass sentence. The judge here decided that he did not agree at all. And he overrode the jury's determination that aggravating factors were outweighed by the mitigating factors. Hence, he sentenced Garden to death. As with any death penalty case, there were automatic appeals. And usually when there's a guilty verdict for 
you know, something that may require a life sentence anyway, there are appeals that the defense or even new attorneys that are working for the defendant will go ahead and file. So what I'm going to do is go over the appeals point by point and just take a look at how they may have played a role, you know, in the trial, in the jury's determination. So first up is Garden's attorneys argued that trials regarding the December 17th robbery and the December 18th attempted robbery and murder should have been severed. Once it was determined that Garden, along with Johnson, with Hollis, knowing about the crimes, had committed both, the trials were combined. Garden's attorney said they should have been severed because they were not the same crime. But additionally, this is where it gets kind of interesting, is Garden said that it could have affected the way that they approached the trial and that he may or may not have testified on his own behalf if the trials had been severed. The reason for this is on, in regards to the December 17th robberies, he initially lied to the police. And he was afraid then that those lies might come up in any you know, cross-examination that the prosecution would have um, during his testimony. So because of that, he could not testify on his own behalf about the murder charges because he was afraid it would affect his credibility. And to a degree, I understand the argument, but as to whether or not it's a valid claim, I have my own thoughts on that. Now, I'm not an attorney, just someone interested in the you know penal system and you know how things work in regards to how victims are treated and then also how the defendants are punished or how the system just reacts to the crime to try to make things safer for everybody around to quote from the Delaware appellate court's opinion that summarized the portion of the appeal quote garden claims that he would have testified on his own behalf as to the murder charge but for the fear that the state would then introduce the fact that he initially lied to police regarding the events of December 17th, but later confessed. This issue was brought up at trial, and Garden's attorneys attempted to have the two cases severed, but that was denied. They were part of the, quote, same robbery scheme, end quote. Rather than go through two or three whole pages citing legal cases and giving specific examples, to summarize, the crimes were similar enough that it's logical that they must have been connected. There are some very specific criteria as to when there should be separate or combined trials. So it was reviewed. The judge denied it. Um, as he determined this was not one of the instances that met the criteria for the cases to be severed. There were enough similarities, such as at least one person being armed, also the fact that they were on successive nights, that they were near Garden's apartment, his residence. So it was seen as kind of the extension of or really the same crime. I look at it myself in kind of like um, serial killers or spree killers in the fact that, yes, they happen to different people 
on different dates, maybe depending on the individual cases, but it's multiple cases tried at one time because they are part of the same pattern. In this case, they called it scheme. But we see how the three people collaborated to try to bring rob people. The appellate decision also referenced that it was a hypothetical that Garden may not have actually testified, but Garden's attorney's arguments were that they may have affected whether or not Garden would have testified or not. Another point was that the jury itself separated the murder charges and the attempted murder charges. So even though I do find it kind of questionable that the attempt on Stephanie's life, because again, he shot at her and it still went through her coat, um, that the jury was able to sever that in their minds and find him guilty of the murder charges, but not the attempted murder. So the only positive side to you know, not finding him guilty of Stephanie's attempted murder is that it was a point that the appellate court could bring up and say they were able to distinguish the separate crimes even though they happened on the same night. So if the jury truly thought that he was not guilty of the December 17th crimes, they could have made that decision as well. The next point that Garden's attorneys made was that they stated he did not get a fair trial because the defense attorneys did not have information about the jury's potential criminal history at the same time as the prosecutors. Now, some of us may be thinking, well, it's the prosecutor's job to turn over evidence to the defense, but this was not actually evidence. Both would have had access to the same juror card or juror information, but the prosecutors representing the state use the Delaware Justice computers or programs to determine any criminal history of the jurors. The judge did ask per a motion from the defense that the state turn over what they had regarding the jurors, but this happened after some jurors had already been seated and some had been dismissed. So it was Garden's attorney's contention that it was unfair that they did not have the juror information. However, the defense did have the juror qualification forms and other information, so the defense could have actually compiled the information as well. To quote previous case law from the court documents, quote, due process is violated, however, only when the prosecution fails to disclose information hearing on a juror's ability to render an impartial verdict, end quote. So in other words, the only time the prosecution would have to turn over information about the jurors to the defense is if they found something that would make the jurors partial in any way. So, for example, if somebody on the jury was the victim's second cousin and the prosecution found out, they would have to turn that over to the defense. But this is why it's important, too, for jurors to answer all the questions truthfully on the juror form, because if it's found out that a juror has provided incorrect information and they are actually more inclined to find a guilty verdict, then that has to be turned over. 
I've been called for jury duty, I think five times now. Um, I did serve shortly on one jury, but it was declared a mistrial. But in one of the cases, the judge did ask if anybody had, and she went through a whole list, like related to the you know attorneys involved, any of the police officers involved. And then one of the questions was if anybody had ever been a victim of that crime. I had, and I went up to the judge because I don't know if it's the same in every state, but this was, it was going to be probably a shorter trial and anybody who had raised their hand for any of those questions had to go up and talk to the judge and the attorneys. So I went up there and I did explain that I had been a victim of this crime, but that I felt I could be impartial. But I was dismissed because even though I felt I could be impartial, it could probably be grounds for an appeal. And I have seen a few cases recently where you know, jurors have you know, lied on their forms, basically, and they've had to do retrials because it was found that the juror was definitely more inclined to render a guilty verdict. In this case, the judge, like I said, did compel the prosecution to give the defense the information. The state had said it would be a violation of privacy to do so. So the appellate court, you know, did have just one remark to make about that. But overall, they sided with the judge in that he was trying to balance out things to try to make it as fair as possible and allow the defense access to the juror information, even though they could have found it themselves. So this part of the appeal was basically dismissed. It was denied. Next up is uh, something interesting, and I wonder if everybody else will find this as interesting as I do. And there are a few things about Johnson writing letters that I find interesting. But the court had allowed a letter that the um, co-conspirator Johnson had sent to Siddiqui Garden to be put into evidence. Police did have a search warrant and executed it upon the Tatnall Street address. The letter was dated two years before the crimes took place, but for some reason was still sitting on a kitchen table, so I find that a little odd, but that's just me. But this, um, the police executed the search warrant, and the state had wanted to show that Johnson and Garden had been friends for quite a while. The defense had actually said in their opening statement that it was actually Johnson and Hollis who had a longer-term friendship and that those two were conspiring to accuse Garden. So the letter itself was basically to show that Johnson and Garden had been friends for a while and to refute what the defense had said. A Detective Mullins was the officer who had executed the search warrant and he conducted the search of the apartment and the state brought forth the letter, but the defense argued that it should not be admitted. The reasons why were, quote, grounds of lack of authentication, relevance, and that the letter was outside the scope of the search warrant. In the appeal decision, though, the appellate court saw that the letter had Johnson's address on it as the return address, which happened to be the Delaware Correctional Center at the time. And I believe that probably could be pretty well established. You know, we do know that he has a criminal record. 
So the envelope with the letter had Johnson's name, the Delaware Correctional Center address, and it was addressed to Garden. The contents of the letter were irrelevant, and that was not the purpose of the introduction. It was just to refute the fact that the defense said Garden and Johnson were not friends. With having that address, the both the address of Garden and of Johnson on the same letter, the appellate court saw that as a self-authentication, as something I saw um, you know, referred to this. As far as the relevance, it was not the actual letter itself that was being presented. It was, or the contents of the letter, it was just the fact that they were friends. And as far as the scope of the search warrant, the search warrant did say that papers were among one of the things that could be collected. So the appellate court denied this part of the motion in the appeals. Next was John's identification. Now, this is um, the male who was with um, Stephanie and Denise Rudy that night. Now, on the Denise, or, I'm sorry, on the night that Denise was killed, John gave a description of the shooter and he was given a photo lineup. Though it doesn't say it explicitly, it does make it sound like Garden was part of the lineup, um, but John could not identify him then. And he actually reviewed the lineup or a photo lineup two more times and could not make any identification. Later, however, at a hearing, um, all three men, Johnson, Hollis, and Garden, were at this hearing and so was John. It was then that John went up to, um, not sure if it was a police officer or one of the attorneys, and identified that Garden was in fact the shooter. Now, this fact in itself was not hidden from the jury. John did say that he recognized Garden only after seeing him at the preliminary hearing, stating that, quote, it brought it all back, that I thought that was the guy, end quote. Now, here's where I think things start to get really interesting. It could be stated that the fact that John was only able to pick out Garden while at court was in some ways, quote, unduly suggested, end quote. I'm not sure if anybody has ever seen or heard about suggestiveness of photo lineups and even in-person lineups. Before some of the psychology of identification was really known, in times gone by, photo lineups might have been made up of photos that were completely different. For example, you might have five of six people in the lineup, say, up against a blue background. That's what most of our um, driver's license look like. And then the sixth person would be someone standing, you know, with those little plaques or um, signs in front of them that say that they have a prisoner number and then they have the height chart behind them. That makes somebody more apt to choose that one person who's different. Um, so that's just kind of one example to get the idea that lineups, whether in person or by photo, can be suggestive. This also comes up in case someone has seen a picture of the suspect in the newspaper and things like that. Since John actually saw Garden at a hearing regarding this crime, it could make him more suggestive or apt to pick out one of those three as the shooter. If they had put three, 
put them into, say, a random group of people, it could be argued that John would not have been able to pick out Garden, but because he was one of the three men at the defense table, then he would be more apt to choose Garden. So I definitely do understand this, and I've seen some examples of where lineups were just, you know, it was obvious that one person was in a different setting or, you know, it was a picture that stuck out more than the others. So there's definitely a psychological um, aspect to that, and I did find it pretty interesting. The appellate court, though, responded that it was not the state's actions that caused this. So it was not a case where the prosecution asked John to come in and look at the three men standing at the desk or the defense table or anything like that. John had actually attended the hearing on his own as a victim's right. It was you know, his right to do so. It was not, say, a subpoena where the prosecution required him to be there. So the state had no misconduct in it. And that's really the argument that was or that had to be countered. It was not the state's fault that someone who had the right to be there was there and then made the identification. Additionally, the defense actually knew that John would be attending and didn't do anything to object or bring up you know, this point at the time. Going back to the idea of lineups being suggestive, there have been Supreme Court decisions and state decisions that say where even if a lineup could have in some ways been suggestive, if the identification could still be deemed reliable, it would then still be admissible. So since Garden didn't match the description that John had given the night of the murder, it could be considered reliable especially as it was not the state's doing that brought John, you know, into the courtroom. He came on his own. The next point of the appeal goes back to something I discussed earlier during the trial, and that was the testimony regarding eyewitness identification. We've all probably heard that eyewitness identification is not always very accurate, to say the least. The defense had hired a Dr. Simon Falero, who is an expert in the subject matter. Now, when an expert gives testimony, it's not just someone who says, hi, I'm an expert in this subject and I'm going to give testimony. You know, there has to be a review and in some cases a hearing to make sure that the person actually meets the criteria of being an expert. The judge did hold a hearing and said that Dr. Falero could testify. And as I went over somewhat earlier, a component that the judge said could not be discussed was the witness's confidence in a statement. This can get a little bit confusing, but here we go. Dr. Falero said that the confidence of an identification does not have a direct correlation as to whether or not it's accurate. Now, I will let you know through some of this, there may be some phrases interspersed that are direct quotes from the um the appellate decision just because there's no other way to word it. And in other areas, I'm paraphrasing, but I do just want to put it out there that, you know, there may be some phrases in here that are directly from there, but I'm not going to say quote, end quote, every single time. But I will have a link to that document in the description. And then the reverse of what Dr. Falera was saying is that even if someone's not entirely sure of an 
identification, it does not mean that they're not correct. So if someone says, I'm 100% positive that that's the person who committed the crime, it does not necessarily mean that they are correct. If another person says, I'm only about 75% sure that's the person, it does not mean that they're incorrect or correct. So basically, the witness's idea of how sure they are does not actually play a role in whether or not they are correct. Now, the appellate court did actually see this as an error, and the fact that the judge said that Falero could not testify about this, but they saw it as harmless, the appellate court thought that the judge should have allowed this testimony because it has been given as testimony in other trials, not necessarily just in Delaware, but, you know, across the country. It was established that the doctor was an expert, so he should have been able to address this issue, and then the prosecution could have cross-examined the doctor regarding this. The judge could have also given instructions to the jury to help narrow their focus. The judge had been concerned about this type of testimony possibly leading the jury to infer that the witnesses were incorrect because they were confident. So in other words, he was concerned that the jury may misconstrue what Dr. Falero was saying. But again, the appellate court saw it as a harmless error because many of the same topics were covered to some extent in the testimony that Dr. Falero did give. He was also allowed to discuss stress during a situation, focus on the weapon, because really, if you have a gun pointed at you, that's what you're going to be focusing on, and cross-racial identification. Additionally, Garden had been identified by his co-conspirators, so the appellate court did not really see this as an overwhelming issue. And the next point was in the same lines as ident- of the identification. Garden's defense attorneys or appeals attorneys questioned the judge's decision to review refuse jury instructions that discussed cross-racial identification. Even though Dr. Falero had testified about this and in his own testimony, the defense had proposed an instruction to be given to the jury. The instruction that they wanted to give was, quote, you may consider, if you think it is appropriate to do so, whether the cross-racial nature of the identification has affected the accuracy of the witness original perception, and or the accuracy of the subsequent identification, end quote. During the trial, the judge gave a standard instruction to the jury about eyewitness testimony and identification. The judge also thought that the information about the cross-racial identification should have been presented during defense arguments and not during the actual judge's instructions to the jury. So this would have been brought up during Dr. Falero's original testimony, and then the defense could have brought it up again during closing arguments. So the judge did not think it was appropriate to give this as a direct instruction to the jury. Garden's attorneys saw this as an abuse of discretion. There had been other court cases, and one that actually took place not too long before this, not in Delaware, though, in New Jersey, where it was argued that instructions regarding cross-racial identification could be required during certain circumstances. 
However, it can be up to an interpretation depending on the circumstances of the trial. Garden's attorneys argued that there was really no other evidence to put Garden in the parking lot with the gun at the time of Denise Rudy's murder. This means that the question of eyewitness identification becomes very important, and so it needed to be given the utmost attention and regards during the jury instruction. This is, you know, according to the defense. Prosecutors countered that because cross-racial identification testimony had been provided during the trial by Dr. Falero, that it did not and should not have been given as a jury instruction. In the court case in New Jersey that was referred to, the state versus Cromedy, there was a situation where the defendant was African-American and the victim was Caucasian. Also, there was a time gap of eight months between the assault and robbery and the identification in the New Jersey case. In the New Jersey case, there was also no forensic evidence, which is why that was a key point during the appeal, which Cromedy actually did win in New Jersey. The appellate court in that case considered the instruction necessary, but getting back to Denise Rudy's murder and Garden's trial, the appellate court found that the judge did not abuse his discretion. In the Cromedy case, there was only one witness but multiple witnesses putting Garden at the scene. Also in the Cromedy case, the time period between the murder and the identification was multiple months, whereas in the Garden case, the last witness identified Garden approximately two weeks after the murder. So it was nowhere near the same time period. And again, there is reference to the fact that he had two co-conspirators who also testified against him. So the two cases were not that similar, according to the Delaware Appellate Court. Furthermore, in regards to the jury instruction, the judge is supposed to point out only matter of law. The appellate court thought that if the judge gave these instructions about the cross-racial identification, the jury might see it in context, possibly as a rule or matter of law. As Garden's defense had actually already had expert testimony on the facts, the judge did not have to give pointed and directed instructions regarding the cross-racial identification. Now, if you're not familiar with cross-racial identification, it's about the accuracy of somebody of one race identifying a person of another race. I am going to leave a few links in the description um, that kind of cover a lot of bases. One is from the National Institute of Health. Um, one is from Wikipedia. I know Wikipedia is, it, it may not always be reliable, but there's always sources there that you can link to. And then one from an Innocence Project so that it should cover kind of the full gamut of the role that cross-racial identification plays in trials. Now, next up, after all of the points being argued against the verdict, we now move on to the penalty phase and the fact that he was given the death penalty. Going back to earlier in the episode, the jury had to weigh the aggravating factors against mitigating factors. Garden's attorney said that because of the aggravating factors, like the attempted robbery had already been established when the jury gave the guilty verdict, that the state did not have the right during the penalty phase to make any rebuttal arguments. 
The state said that, yes, they did have a burden of proof to meet in the penalty phase, as they needed to show that the aggravating factors were greater than the mitigating factors. The judge, during the trial, did allow the state to give a rebuttal closing argument. The appellate court concurred with the decision, saying that the statute actually does give the state the right to a rebuttal. Next, and most importantly, is the fact that the judge did not agree with and then overruled the jury's decision that the mitigating circumstances outweighed the aggravating circumstances. Because of the jury's decision on this, they would not be recommending the death penalty, but life in prison. But the judge in this trial overruled that. Garden's attorney said that because the judge did this, he did not give the weight to the jury's decision as he should have. The jury does play a very important role in any case. And the fact is that the jury heard the entire testimony. They saw all of the evidence as compared to anybody who's sitting outside, you know, 20 plus years later looking at the case. So I wasn't there and why I have information, I don't have everything that the jury had. So they had to weigh what they had in front of them. And, you know, again, they have more information than any of us would. And that's in any type of case where a jury has to make a decision. So they hold a very important role and a very heavy role, especially when it comes to a case where there may be the death penalty. An argument that can be made is that the jury, as an integral part of the legal system, has made the decision that Garden was guilty and that they should be given the same weight in regards to their decision about the aggravating versus mitigating factors. The judge's explanation as to why he rejected the jury's recommendation of life in prison was he said it was an advisory verdict. So basically, the decision of the jury, the 9 to 3 and 10 to 2 um, verdict saying the mitigating factors outweighed aggravating factors, the judge said it was just there to advise him. So he did technically have the right to override it, but Garden's attorneys were saying that he did not give it the weight that they deserved. A judge should only consider overruling the jury if they found that to justify the death penalty, that the facts are, quote, so clear and convincing that virtually no reasonable person could differ, end quote. And that comes from another case that I covered previously called First State, First Serial Killer about Stephen Pinnell. So some of these things were brought up in prior cases as well. As with the other states mentioned, Florida and Alabama, both states had interpreted their role after the jury gives a recommendation differently. Delaware had redrafted statutes in 1991 and kind of patterned it more about Florida's ruling more than Alabama's. Delaware appellate courts have upheld a judge's right to reject the jury's verdict or recommendation about sentencing. However, in those cases, it was actually in the reverse situation where the jury had recommended the death sentence, but the judge opted for life in prison. So the appellate court was more apt to agree with a judge deciding life in prison was more appropriate than in this case where the judge was 
deciding that the death penalty was more appropriate. The death penalty is final. It's the ultimate punishment. So the appellate court really thought that should have been given, the jury's decision should have been given more weight. Um, And anything that could be argued, you know, in terms of the appellate court overruling before, it was the exact opposite of this case. Additionally, the jury has been referred to as the conscience of the community. And there was some question in the direction given by the judge during the jury instruction. The appellate court thought that the jury may have been misled about the level or weight of their decision. In the actual instructions that they were given, the judge did use terms such as the conscience of the community. And he did mention how much weight their decision would carry. So the appellate court thought that maybe the jury may have thought that no matter what their decision was, it would be followed. Hence, the appellate court reversed the decision of the death penalty and remanded the case back to the Supreme Court of Delaware. And it kind of seemed contradictory to me, saying it ha- he had to go back to sentencing and you know, a judge had to give the decision using the same you know, objectives as before. So it's, it was just kind of like, okay, well, you're sending it back to go through the same process. So it almost seems like should there be the judge's discretion in terms of the decision or should it be solely up to the jury? If like in this case, the jury overrode, I'm sorry, the judge overrode the jury's decision and the appellate court overrides the judge's decision, then why not just make it standard that you know, no matter what, if you're found guilty of these things, it's the death penalty, or if the jury says death penalty or no death penalty, it's not up to the judge's discretion. So at least at this point in time when it was sent back, it almost seemed like it was leaving open these loopholes um, you know, that really needed to be addressed. So now we have, you know, Garden's appeals, and we've seen that most of the appeals were denied, but the biggest part in regards to the penalty being the death penalty was reversed. So while now it should seem like everything is said and done, other factors do not end here. Garden's defense requested that the original trial judge recuse himself from any of the upcoming phases of Garden's trial, like the sentencing hearing or anything else that may come up. After Garden was convicted, Christopher Johnson wrote a letter directly to the judge, because we all know he likes writing letters, and recanted his testimony. The judge, doing exercising due diligence, sent copies of the letter to both Garden's defense attorneys and the state. Garden's defense attorneys were arguing that there should be a new trial because of this, partially because Johnson was taking back his testimony, and partially, too, because they thought the judge could be biased. The judge did respond to Johnson's letter as well. Now, maybe I watched too many true crime shows or listened to too many podcasts myself, but the fact that the judge wrote back and actually had a response to Johnson kind of makes my current sensibilities feel a little bit off. 
I've watched some trials directly through live streams, and in some cases, the defendant or a witness may have written a letter to the judge. It does come up occasionally, especially if um, the defendant is rep representing themselves and they don't understand all of the motions and things that need to be done. And I've seen it handled a few different ways. Um, sometimes the judge does send something back, but it's just a very standard note saying that everything needs to be filed, you know, and then it will give, you know, just very basic information, but no legal advice. Just, I can't take your letter, basically. Then contact the court or the clerk of courts to follow up. Sometimes it is the clerk of the court that sends a response because these types of communications aren't supposed to be allowed between you know, witnesses and defendants, it's all supposed to go through the attorneys. And they all have, you know, different steps and motions that you need to go through. But when the judge wrote back, he wrote back, Dear Mr. Johnson, thank you for your letter concerning the Siddiqui Garden case. I have sent copies of it to the prosecutors and to the defense attorneys. There is one small mistake in your letter, that there is no 90-day time limit for the state to do anything more on your case. It is possible that the state will seek to reopen your case on the grounds that you broke your plea agreement by not testifying truthfully and will seek to re-prosecute you for capital murder. Now, before I, oh, end quote, I'm sorry, before I even read or understood any part of Garden's motion to have a new trial because of this, just looking at this response may almost seem like a threat by the judge, saying that if John's, Johnson you know, further recants, that he could be going back to jail for a murder charge. The judge may not have meant it that way. He may have been just trying to point out something that um, Johnson, I'm sorry, Johnson had said during the letter and just giving him information and sincerely trying to help. But it could also be looked at as if you follow through with this, then you're going to be prosecuted. And that could be deemed by some people as a threat. However, since the judge actually, you know, gave copies and everything to the defense and to the prosecution, I don't think the judge meant anything by it, but it could be interpreted that way. Now things actually get a little more interesting. Johnson received that letter from the judge. The ju or Johnson then replied saying that he'd never written the judge. So, honestly, that was not something that I saw coming once I got to the end of the judge's letter. I was reading this thinking, hmm, I wonder if nowadays if this would be considered proper and finding it a little iffy about, you know, what the judge said. So then to come to the point where it says Johnson replied that he never wrote to the judge made me just kind of stare at the document for a while. Johnson even testified during a motion for a new trial that he did not send the letter. Now, at this point then, I kind of thought back to those last lines and I wondered, did the judge's words about being prosecuted for murder make Johnson rethink what he was doing and now say that, nope, I never wrote you the letter? But we know that Johnson does like to write letters. And also there was no email back then, so everything was physical letter. There were some comparisons made to the letters that were known to be written by Johnson and the one that the judge received. 
the letters were determined to have been written in a different style. So though not explicitly said, it's almost implied that somebody wrote the letter stating that they were Johnson when they were not to try to bring some questionability to the judge or to the whole trial proceedings. Now, the court denied the motion for a new trial on this basis um, because, for one thing, the letter was received after the trial was already over, after the sentence had already been passed. So it had no impact on the original trial. In regards to recusing himself, um, you know, because of anything that may have happened in the trial, the judge stated, quote, that he had no personal bias against Garden and did not see any appearance of impropriety in his responding to a letter from the prisoner, end quote. So Garden, before this point at the appellate court, had already put in a motion for a new trial because of this letter and asked the judge to recuse himself. The judge denied that motion. Now, this is something where I can see Garden's attorneys point to the fact that even if the judge did not mean for it to look like it was improper, it can be read as such. However, I guess maybe this is why I'm not a judge in Delaware, because the state said that, yes, it was proper for the judge to respond like that, and that it was actually routine, and that it was within the judge's discretion whether or not he wants to recuse himself. Now, I, I kind of have a mixture of opinions on this. If a defendant asks a judge to recuse themselves, could the judge even unintentionally bring a bias into the proceedings? You know, if someone accuses you of being partial to someone or being biased against someone, especially if you were not biased against them, it could kind of, you know, make you feel some sort of way where even, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously you are projecting then some type of anger or grudge against that defendant. I know judges are meant to be entirely impartial, but they are human. And so I question, would they, you know, actually feel a certain type of way towards the defendant if they asked to recuse the judge or the judge to recuse himself? But especially in a small state like Delaware, we do not have a ton of judges. So if a defendant asked for every judge to recuse themselves, eventually you would run out of judges. So it's not just something where the appellate court could say, yep, the judge needs to recuse himself when there's no valid reason to do so. Because again, the letter came in after everything was already done. It should not have impacted the trial. So the appellate court did not see any reason for the judge to recuse himself in regards to anything regarding the letter or any type of bias. Even though Garden's death penalty sentence was reversed and he was given life in prison, it wasn't an incredibly long time. On September 28, 2015, Garden died at Christiana Hospital at the age of 40 due to an illness. More information was not provided, and as per protocol, the Delaware State Police did an investigation, but it looked as though everything was due to natural causes, not any foul play. Now, again, I know that this was a lot of legal stuff, and getting into it, I just 
once I started reading um, the appellate court's decision, and that's where a lot of this information came from, as many of the newspapers just kept repeating the same thing. Um, there were two um, court documents that you know really covered everything, one even more so than the other. But starting to read it, I just, I imagined what the families may have felt like knowing that, you know, this person who it seems pretty straightforward killed your loved one, but they keep getting to come back and file appeals. But we have that process for a reason so that people can be given as fair a trial as possible. In death penalty cases especially, it's very common to have appeals filed immediately and also for guilty verdicts in murder cases. And so while some of the points that the defense brought up can be seen as valid, there was enough counter evidence, I guess you would say, that caused those motions or requests to be denied. But when dealing with what I'm going to call the ultimate punishment, the death penalty, we have to realize there's no taking it back. So everything needs to be followed to the letter to make sure if that decision is made that it was handed down fairly. So I think most appellate courts, if there's any question about the judge's ruling in that case, they're going to err on the side of the defendant like they did here. And then when we got to the letter about, you know, what Johnson supposedly sent, I don't know, that just I'm kind of wondering who wrote it. Was it a family member of Garden's trying to, uh, you know, cause some doubt? Was it Garden himself who wrote it and maybe asked someone to mail it for him? Because if he had mailed it, it would have had the Department of Corrections, wherever he was at, that address on it. But, you know, why was this done? Who wrote that letter? Um, There's also the question, which is, you know, like I said, another episode I'll probably be looking at doing is the fact that Johnson had walked away from um, the work release and drug rehab program that he was in. Even though Garden was the one who actually shot Denise, would he have had the courage to go out and commit these robberies if he didn't have a lookout, and vice versa from the night before when Johnson was the one with the gun? And when I do that, I'll take a look at, if I can find the exact um, sentence that Hollis and... Johnson both got because even though Hollis knew about the crimes that they were going to be committed, he never actually did anything himself. So that's kind of interesting to me as well. I know this was a little differently or different than some of the episodes, but there was a lot of legal, you know, information in here that I just found a little engrossing. Maybe that's me, you know, that I found it so interesting, but I hope you guys did too. Let me know if you like some of these episodes where it is more about the legal aspects because there were loopholes that weren't really covered, such as, you know, the judge making a ruling that um, he overruled the jury, then the appellate court reversed that, but then sent it back to the same courts that had made the original decision for the death penalty. So it's like something needs to be firmed up here or we're going to be keep having, you know, back and forths regarding, you know, these types of crimes. And even though the death penalty has now been 
um, banned in Delaware, to me, it's just seems incomplete if those loopholes aren't covered or closed, I should say. But I hope everybody has a very safe and happy new year. And I look forward to doing new episodes next year. And I'm hoping because I ordered a computer, I still need to get my monitor and a keyboard to try to actually do some videos on these. Um, I'm not sure how powerful the computer will be. It's a mini PC. Um, but supposedly it has more RAM than the computer that I have now. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to figure out how to get everything set up. Um, I've never done really any video editing, but, you know, I think it might be interesting in some cases to have that along with the podcast. But again, I look forward to talking to everybody next year. I cannot promise that there will be an exact schedule for each episode as, you know, I'm going through myself, I have health issues. So I'm going through those. And also a family member who has many, many doctor's appointments with health issues as well. Um, but I will you know, do as many as I can and get them posted. I just don't want to give an exact time frame like every week, every two weeks. But I do want to do at least two a month. So if you have any case ideas that you want me to cover, please let me know. Um, Facebook Messenger is usually the quickest way to get in touch with me. And again, have a safe and happy new year. And I'll be talking to you in 2024. Bye.